Welcome to the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Save podcast. I'm your host, Darla Simpson, coming to you from beautiful North Vancouver, British Columbia, on the traditional lands of the Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the First Nations Home Energy Safe podcast. Today is all about understanding different heating and hot water technologies and how they impact energy efficiency, health, comfort, and affordability. And our guest today is Dami Dabiri, an engineer with SES Consulting, and your first time as our guest expert on this series. Welcome, Dami. Thank you very much. Uh, Today, our goal is really to provide an overview of the most common heating and hot water systems with a few big ideas to help Indigenous communities make informed decisions when it comes to replacing a heating system or even when you're building new. Specifically, we want to understand the trade-offs between different technologies in our HVAC systems, so heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems, how to balance all those different demands. So Dami, diving right in, in terms of energy efficiency and keeping our utility bills low, How important is the heating and hot water technologies in our homes? I would say they are crucial. Heating is 50% of an average BC home's energy use and hot water is 26%. Right there, you have 76% of your energy use, your utility bill. And so for that reason, just because they hold such a big portion of the energy we spend, I think they offer the best bang for our buck to focus our energy on. And if you think about it, either it's heating your home or heating your domestic hot water, it's often done with fossil fuels. And so these two areas are also really high carbon intensity areas. It's important to note here that when it comes to heating, you, you can't speak about heating without talking about envelope. And so focusing on your envelope and making sure your envelope is is great really determines how much you need for heating and how much your utilities are going to be when it comes to heating your house. And that's one of the reasons that we focused on buildings as a system as the first episode in this podcast series. It's because really you want to tighten up your envelope as much as possible. And that means you're going to have to provide less heat right off the bat. You're going to have lots of benefits. We're talking about heating and hot water together today because the technologies are very similar. We often see combined systems in our homes too. Dami, let's start with heating systems. These can get quite complex, but can you describe for us in very simple terms the main types of heating system designs? Absolutely, Darla. When we talk about heating system designs, they fall pretty much squarely under two categories. They can either be central heating systems or direct heating systems. And what do I mean by that? For a direct heating system, think about any system that generates heat in the exact space that it's being used. So if we take that to example to the example of a home, think about your electric baseboard heaters, your ductless heat pumps, your pellet stoves, fireplaces, space heaters, either electric, gas, propane, what have you. Those are examples of a direct heating system. A central heating system is almost opposite in the sense that your heat is generated in one location and then that heat is transferred somehow to the location that it's going to be used. Common examples of these you might see in a home are either air type heating systems or water, also known as hydronic type heating systems. When you think about your air type heating systems, think about a furnace, for example. You have your furnace room either in the basement or somewhere on the, on the main floor you burn fuel oil or propane or natural gas or even use electricity to generate hot air in that furnace and then that fur- that hot air is ducted to several spaces in your home where the heat is needed in the case of the the hydronic heating system you could have a boiler producing heat again either through electricity or natural gas or through fuel oil in the boiler room say in the basement and that 
hot water it produces is pumped to several spaces around the house where it's going to be used. Right. And with hydronic systems, those can be either that in-floor radiant heating or um, in other places we see hot water radiators or even wall panels. So a hydronic system can look a little bit different depending on the home that you're in. Absolutely. A hydronic system will have different faces depending on the design that's been implemented, like you said. Thank you for clarifying. And, and you mentioned that the heat can be generated from many different sources. So electricity, uh, natural gas, propane, fuel oil. You can also get heat from a heat pump for all of these systems, right? You can have an air-to-water heat pump. You can have an air-to-air heat pump. You can have ductless heat pump that would be a direct heating system. The short answer is yes, but we're going to talk a bit more about that in a little while here. That's the simple explanation, but I know it can get a lot more complicated than that. You can have primary and backup heating systems. You can have hybrid systems. You can have combined heating and hot water systems. So what are some of the complicating factors or other things we want to think about when we're designing a heating system? Like, why do we have all this variety? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Like I said before, heating systems can have many different faces. There are several factors that go into it, but sometimes it's just a matter of preference. For example, we talked about the, the in-floor radiant heaters that come with hydronic heating systems. Some people like this because it's more comfortable. You know, you get that warm, cushy, comfy feeling on your feet. Some people like it because you don't see any visible vents or pipes or radiators. And it gives off an even heat as well. If you compare that to, say, a forced air furnace, where you might hear the furnace coming on and off, you might hear the, the air rushing through the vents, and then, you know, for some people, you might have an unsightly vent giving off heat or air into your room. For some people, they don't like that. So it can depend on preference in a lot of cases, what your heating system looks like. Sometimes it's also just what you have access to. So for example, if you live in a rural community where you have a lot of access to wood at little to no cost, then a wood stove would make perfect sense. In the particular example of a wood stove, however, they can cause humidity issues because of the uneven heat they, they give off. So in that case, maybe you're better off going with a propane or fuel oil type heater that can give you a reliable, even source of heating. Reliability can also be a factor in remote areas for things like power disruptions and the need to have backup systems, right? Absolutely. I think reliability is also one of those factors that is pretty important when it comes to designing a heating system. To take the example of a home in a rural community again, if you live in a place where electricity disruptions or outages are fairly common, you could still go ahead and make your, your primary heating system based on electricity. But what you want to do in that case is you want to have a backup system that uses a, a different fuel source, say wood or pellets, and that could be in the form of a wood fireplace or a pellet stove, whatever it is. You just want to have something that's a different energy source than that electricity, just in case one of those power disruptions happens. And balancing that upfront cost, so something like a heat pump can be really expensive, versus the ongoing cost, which is the utilities that the resident will have to pay. And there's kind of sometimes competing interests there. Yeah, absolutely. I think cost is a super important, if not the most important factor we consider when we think about installing or upgrading heating systems. And you mentioned an important distinction, ongoing cost and, and upfront cost. And to kind of give you an idea of what that is, we're going to use the heat pump example. So heat pumps, because of the nature of the technology and because they're fairly new, their upfront cost is pretty high compared to conventional technology like electric baseboards, which have been around forever and are pretty cheap to install upfront. 
However, heat pumps can be three times, maybe even four times more efficient than electric baseboards. And so the ongoing cost of running a heat pump is a third or a quarter of what it would cost to run an electric baseboard. And so the ongoing cost of a heat pump is way less than the ongoing cost of an electric baseboard. And so these are the kind of things you have to be thinking about when it comes to cost and choosing what your heating system is going to be. We're talking about heating systems in a very simplistic way, like as a, as a single unit, but they're not always so straightforward. They can be combined in different permutations and combinations as well, right? I think it is easy to take a simplistic view of heating systems, but they are typically not just one thing providing heat for a house. Typically, they are a combination of several pieces of equipment. Let's take the heat pump, for example. You could have a central furnace type heat pump that's producing warm air for your house under normal circumstances. But say, for example, temperatures drop below what your heat pump is rated for, then you might have an electric coil type heater at the very end of the run of your duct just to provide that little bit of extra heat needed during those periods of extra demand. Or you might have a space heater that provides that little bit of extra heat needed. Or you might even have a wood fireplace or wood pellet stove. There are varieties of setups that you can have for heating systems, but essentially they are a combination of different pieces that make your home comfortable. And you can even see combined heating and hot water systems. I know that right now through Better Homes BC, there are even incentives for energy efficient combined heating and hot water systems. Why would you choose to go with a combo system like that? Combined heating and hot water systems. We mean specifically domestic hot water systems. These setups come in handy in a few scenarios. So say, for example, you are short for space in your boiler room. You might combine those systems to conserve space. There really isn't, in my experience, an energy efficiency reason for this because you're still going to use the same amount of energy. It really just comes down to case-by-case -case limitations, different factors like that, but none of them really energy efficiency-based. GHG emissions are a growing factor for people to be thinking about. It's actually happening more and more often that greenhouse gas emissions is considered right up there with things like cost, like preference, like reliability, like we just talked about. The one sure way to, to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions is just to pivot away from carbon-based fuels. So things like your propane, your natural gas, fuel oils, you want to shelve those in favor of less greenhouse gas intensive heating technologies. For example, heat pumps like we've discussed, those are very efficient and they use electricity as a fuel source. So that could be an option if greenhouse gas emissions are something that you're looking to cut dramatically. With all this, Tammy, what is the most efficient heating system? I would say that there is no such thing as the most efficient heating system or the holy grails of efficient heating systems. Within each of the systems we've talked about, you can have efficient models and designs, and you can also have inefficient models or designs. So for example, you can have a wood stove as your heating system that's more efficient than a wood fireplace when it comes to heating your home. You can have a gas furnace that's 98% efficient or a gas furnace that's 80% efficient. The important thing to keep in mind is whatever you choose, you want to choose an efficient model. Having said that, heat pumps are the most efficient from an energy perspective. Heat pumps capture latent heat from air or water or ground, depending on the setup that you have. In BC, we mostly see air source heat pumps. They're cost effective and they can be installed anywhere. Because they're capturing heat, latent heat from the environment and not making heat from a fuel source, they can be more than 100% efficient. They can provide up to two or three times more heat than the energy needed to run the equipment. 
electric resistance heating can be up to 100% efficient because 100% of electricity that goes into the equipment comes out as heat. After that, you have combustion heating, which is always less than 100% efficient because not all the fuel that you put into your system and is burned goes to heat. The best natural gas systems can reach 98% efficiency, like we've already mentioned. Fuel oil and propane are less efficient than natural gas as a fuel source. And then after that, you have wood burning systems like wood burning furnaces that will top out at 88% efficiency for the most efficient models. Dami, heating system design also affects how efficient it is. So in a forced air system, how the ducting is laid out, where the vents are placed, it's actually how efficient our entire building envelope is and even the design of our home. Again, completely correct. The biggest impact on demand for heating your home, aside from the climate, is your building envelope and how well designed it is. Passive solar heating can reduce your heating requirements to almost nothing. And that's why we, we talk about homes as a system. The efficiency and effectiveness of your heating system is directly impacted by your building envelope and the overall design of the home. And that's why it's also important when you're upgrading your heating system to have someone like an energy advisor come in, do a heat loss calculation for you. That way, you know exactly how much heating your home needs, and then you can do that right sizing of your heating equipment that we talked about. I think this is a good point to take maybe a little aside and talk specifically about heat pumps. They've been around in other parts of the world for a really long time but are relatively new heating technology in BC. And I think people still have a lot of questions, especially around that 200 to 300% efficient. Like, what are you talking about? So can you walk us through that a little bit? How, do, how are heat pumps so efficient? What's going on? Yeah, that's totally understandable. The fact that there's so many questions about heat pumps. I mean, it kind of feels like it's a little box of magic, but it really isn't. It's technology that's been around for quite a while now. And so, yeah, I'll go through the basic steps of how those work. I should mention that the technology in your heat pump is the exact same that's in your fridge. Step one, there is a fluid called refrigerant that runs through your heat pumps in a cycle. First, it absorbs energy from the outside by heat transfer coils. And because of this, this refrigerant warms up. The warm refrigerant then moves to a compressor, which increases the pressure. You can think about this as the compressor concentrating heat in the refrigerant. This hot concentrated refrigerant then is pumped into your home, where there's a second set of heat transfer coils. Typically, there'll be a fan over the coals, which blows the heat energy from the refrigerant into the conditioned space. And then this refrigerant, which has lost its heat to your house, cools down and moves into a device that cools it down further so that it can go back outside to, to grab more heat. And then the cycle is repeated over and over and over. So the, the cycle I just described is a heating cycle. But most heat pumps today will have a reversing valve, so you can run it in reverse and cool the space instead of heating. This cooling heat pump cycle is exactly how your fridge works. We should say that not all heat pump systems have cooling. Some of the air to water or hydronic heat pump systems don't necessarily have cooling, correct? That is correct, yes. Whether or not your heat pump system has cooling will depend first off on your heat pump if it's reversible or not but will also depend on the configuration of your heating systems and i know i was reading a natural resources canada website that some of these heat pumps can actually extract useful heat energy from outside air as cold as minus 30. yep that would be correct the technology has gotten to such a place now that yeah you could essentially have a heat pump in a place like fort st john or edmonton no worries no problem i know i was in edmonton a few months ago walking around this would have been october you know temperatures are dropping already and there are residents there that have heat pumps and are using it and have no complaints 
And so this is why we're talking about climates. It's a good time to mention that, yes, you do have heat pumps that can operate in minus 30, but not every single heat pump is designed to this specification. You will have to take into account, okay, what's the typical climate for where I live? And then find a heat pump that can do what you need it to do. Installing a heat pump that's only designed to extract heat from a minus five degree air minimum is going to spell disaster if you installed that in Fort St. John, for example. So definitely keep that in mind that different heat pumps for different climates, but there's definitely a heat pump for your climate out there. For those folks that might be concerned about the few times of the year where we get more extreme cold weather and our heating systems might struggle to keep up, especially where we're right-sizing our equipment, space heaters can be a good option. I know of a fellow out in Lions Bay who had a minus five rated heat pump installed, which for, you know, the North Shore in the Lower Mainland is not so bad. 99% of the time it's going to provide all the heating he needed, but we had a really cold, windy snap. All he had to do was install a small electric heater in the central hallway, and that's all he needed to keep the temperature up during those three days when it got really cold. So when are space heaters a good idea, and what should we know about energy-efficient space heaters? I think that story you just told Darda really outlines it all. Space heaters are a stopgap measure for extreme weather conditions and nothing more. You cannot heat your home long-term using a space heater. They're terribly inefficient, and so that's going to be very, very costly. You also asked about energy efficient space heaters. And in my experience, there's no such thing as an energy star rated space heater. Like I mentioned before, they are a terribly inefficient way to heat your home. There are some models that are going to be more efficient than others. But when it comes to space heaters, safety is much more of a concern than efficiency. When we talk about safety, you want to make sure that your space heater is is safety certified, either by the Underwriters Laboratory or CSA, which is the Canadian Standards Association, or ETL, which is the Electric Testing Laboratories. Space heaters carrying any one of these certifications are approved for use in Canada. In addition to making sure that whatever space heater you purchase has one of the safety certifications that I just mentioned, you also want to make sure that your space heater has a tip over shut off. You want to make sure that it has an overheating shut off just in case something falls on top of it or the thermostat fails. You don't want it going on incessantly. You also want it to have a grounded plug. Make sure that you're not using extension cords with your space heaters. You want them grounded directly to your electrical outlet. Those are safety tips for electrical space heaters. For combustion type space heaters, you need to be very careful about ventilation. Propane space heaters probably shouldn't be used indoors. Whenever you're burning something, you're releasing poisonous gases that can be fatal in high enough concentrations. So that's something to watch for when it comes to combustion space heaters. Dami, I'm going to be honest, talking through all these different systems, all these different heating sources, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. How does a person make a decision about what's best for their family or their community? How do we start sifting through all these different pieces of information? Between heating sources and heating systems, the options that one has can definitely be overwhelming. But again, you just have to bring it back to the basics. What really matters to me? What am I trying to achieve with this heating system? What do I have available to me? It really comes down to thinking about your community's needs, your priorities, and your preferences. So again, the main things to think about while keeping these needs, priorities, and preferences in mind are accessibility. What options, either heating source or heating designs, are available in your area? For example, if the the nearest heat pump technician or the nearest refrigeration technician is 2,000 kilometers away, maybe investigate other heating system designs. That would be a pain to deal with if anything ever went south or your system needed maintenance. Affordability. 
what's your budget what are the ongoing costs of your of your options and what are the capital costs of your options keep that in mind complexity of installation and maintenance this is one that can be left forgotten because everyone's so concerned with oh let's get the system built and you don't think about okay how are we going to keep it running once it's actually built retrofit limitations if you are not doing new construction, you're going to be doing a renovation. Your options likely will be limited unless you know you're willing to tear it all down and start from base zero. Your options are going to be limited, and in conjunction with limited options, you might also have increased costs for certain types of retrofits. For example, if you already have a hydronic heating system in place, it's probably best to just go with a more efficient boiler, say for example, or even just put in an air to water source heat pump in there going with an air source heat pump or trying to renovate your system to become an air type system that's probably doing too much and it's not necessary preferences we talked already about how having that nice in-floor radiant heating is what we all dream about when we go to bed at night so you might want to think about this when you're considering your options maybe this is something that you think the residents will absolutely enjoy they'll absolutely need then obviously you'll give that priority in your considerations air quality I mean, from main systems to backup systems, we've talked about how burning fossil fuels are going to create potential air quality issues. So if air quality is something that you're concerned about, then maybe consider another system type that's not based on combustion fuels. Climate impact. This is where we talk about GHG emissions. If that's, that's something that you, this is a metric that you really prioritize, you're really, really adamant on reducing your carbon intensity or your carbon, carbon footprint, then maybe you want to look at technologies that don't involve burning fossil fuels, heat pumps, renewable electric. This is where you want to be focusing your scope. So Demi, shifting gears a little bit, what about hot water systems? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I feel like I should clarify a little bit here. I've been talking about heating systems up until this point. I might have mentioned hot water a few times, but you do have heating systems that run off of hot water, heating water to be technically correct. This next section, I'm going to be talking about domestic hot water systems. So hot water slash heating water, totally different from domestic hot water systems. Two main types of of domestic hot water systems you can have. The first type are tanked, and these are the most common. This is probably the one we have in your house because it's technology that's been around for a long time. It involves having a tank or a storage device in a central location. The water is heated, put into that tank, and then distributed to the different end uses in your house. It's like I said, it's the most common, and you can have the different heat sources that we've talked about powering this tank system. So it can be fuel oil, propane, gas, electric, or even heat pump. They're low cost, although with that low cost comes a shorter lifespan as well. They're also relatively inefficient because you're heating water and just storing it in a place when you're not using it. And wherever you have heat stored in one space, you're bound to have losses happen to your environment. So for that reason, they they are inefficient. I should take this time to clarify what I mean by domestic hot water. I mean, it's self-explanatory, but just to make sure. Domestic hot water is all your hot water end use in your house. So showers, your kitchen sink, your dishwasher, your laundry, all of that is what counts as domestic hot water. And so tanked systems are the first type. The second type are tankless systems. And again, just as the name suggests, there is no tank or storage of hot water in a central location. These are less common mostly because this technology is relatively new, but what happens is you have a very high capacity heater in, typically it can be in a central location also localized, 
but then the heater, because it's so powerful, heats water up almost instantaneously right when you need it. And so no tank is needed because the water is being heated up right away. And that's why it's called tankless. When it comes to lifespan, they last about twice as long as domestic hardware tanks. So they're better in that regard. Although I mentioned because the technology is still so new, they are more expensive. They're notorious for having issues with hard water scale. And if your family, if you're a family of eight, for example, and everyone's taking showers at the same time in the morning, tankless hot water heaters do struggle to keep up with simultaneous end uses. So these are definitely some things you want to keep in mind if you're thinking, oh, tankless is so awesome. Like with heating systems, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can also have a combination. So you can have, for example, maybe a tank system supplying the laundry and kitchen downstairs. And then you have a tankless system supplying the showers upstairs. You can definitely have a variety like that as well when it comes to domestic hot water systems. Solar thermal is another one that we see quite often. It has tremendous potential in places like the Southern Okanagan as the primary domestic hot water heating source. So you can also have a system that's maybe solar thermal preheat and then tankless or on-demand hot water system. So different, different combinations of those. Yeah, one thing to keep in mind here is no source of energy is too small. And in a place like the Okanagan, like you mentioned, there is a lot of solar potential there. So taking advantage of that solar potential and heating up your water a little bit before putting it into your tanked or tankless system definitely saves you in utility, saves saves you money, saves you gas, or saves you electricity if you have a heat pump or electric water heater, for, for example. There's different combinations and renewables can definitely make up part of that mix as well. One of the issues that you mentioned there was hard water scale. And I know that that is a major issue or can be a major issue with tankless systems. What are some of the things that we can do to address hard water scale if we if we happen to live in a community with hard water? Depending on the system you choose, so tank or tankless, there, there are a few options that you have with tank systems. I would say you definitely want to take your annual flushing seriously, get a professional to come in during that system and get all of that sediment out of your system so it doesn't accumulate over time. And that will definitely play a part too in extending the life of your water heating tank. Or in conjunction with annual flushes, if your location or your area is just particularly bad for hard water, and of course we know that hard water is caused by minerals in the water. If your location has a lot of minerals in the water that's causing you problems, you can also invest in a water softening system. This is definitely more involved than just annual flushes, but investing in that system might save you dollars in the long run when you don't have to replace your hot water tank five years early. For tankless systems, essentially only one thing you can do, which is install a water softening systems, because unlike tank systems, the volume you have for sediments to accumulate is essentially the thickness of your pipe that's running your domestic hot water through. And so you don't have a lot of room for error. A water softening system would be your best bet for a tankless domestic hot water system. And we should mention hard water. You know if you have this because you've got that white sort of crust buildup on your shower heads, on your taps, your aerators, all that sort of thing. So the people that have hard water typically know they have hard water. I will say one of the other considerations with a tank system, and I can say this speaking from experience, is being on top of the maintenance and inspections on those tank systems. Because when they fail, they often fail catastrophically which means flooding. And uh, as I know you've experienced some flooding, I too have experienced flooding and the costs and just the pain of, of dealing with potential mold and water damage, definitely inspect your tank systems. 
catastrophically, spectacularly, they have the most dramatic adjectives for when they fail tank systems. And so you definitely have to stay on top of that. Like Darla mentioned, I myself experienced a little bit of flooding. And the funny part was it wasn't actually in our apartment. It was the apartment above. Dami, now that we understand how different heating systems work, how domestic hot water systems work, what are the top tips around ensuring our heating and hot water systems are operating most efficiently and using the least amount of energy? I, I think we can boil it down to three big ideas. Number one is the holy grail of energy efficiency. You want to use less. Start with an energy efficient building envelope. If you do this, you're going to need less heating in your building. So that's already starting off on the right foot. Likewise, you want your hot water devices to be energy efficient. So for example, get an energy efficient hot water heater. You want your shower heads to be low flow. So you're using less domestic hot water that way and less heat. Aerators in your taps, front load washing machines where possible, and energy efficient defaults on your washers and dishwashers. These are all things that are gonna help you use less in a myriad of places. Use programmable thermostats and use them properly too. Make sure that if your programmable thermostat has scheduling capabilities that you're taking advantage of that so you're not heating your home when you don't need to be. Temperature settings are also a way to use less. Daytime temperature settings should be between 19 and 21 degrees. Night, when you don't need your space that warm, 16 to 19 degrees. A safety note here is you never want to let your temperature settings fall below 14 degrees, especially if you're in a freezing climate, because that could cause a problem for the piping in your home. And temperature settings should always match the demand. So for example, the heating water temperature from the boiler should be far lower in the summer than in the winter. All of these little tips are ways that you can use less in all the heating and domestic hot water systems that you have in your home. Number two of these big ideas is using energy efficient options. When you have the chance to, go with the most energy efficient, affordable option and make sure it's correctly sized. Most systems are oversized because they're sized for that worst case scenario, but then that results in using much more energy than it needs to for 90% of the year. And for your heating system design, you want to make sure that your piping and ducting is right sized as well. Your piping and ducting should also be insulated to make sure that you don't have unnecessary heat losses. Another thing to keep in mind is that short direct runs are way better than long elaborate runs. So you want to keep the distance between the heating source and the end use as short and direct as possible. Number three on the list of big ideas is heat recovery and preheat as well. We'll touch on this a bit more in the webinar that talks about ventilation and air conditioning. These are really just different components of the same HVAC system. In a home, there are several opportunities for heat recovery. You can recover heat from your ventilation systems. You can recover heat from your domestic hot water system. So for example, there are drain heat recovery systems that will recover heat from your great water that goes down the drain. Those are some ways that you can make use of heat recovery in your home. You can also make use of preheat. So for example, there are solar hot water systems that will preheat your water before it goes onto an on-demand tankless system, for example. So waste heat recovery and preheat, those are great ways to just kind of get a little bit of extra heat out of our environment that would otherwise be wasted and reduce, again, the demand on, on our heating systems. So looking at this more from a problem-solving perspective, what are some of the things to watch for in terms of common challenges or issues with heating and hot water systems? I would say for starters, work with a qualified contractor. This is especially true if you're making a major change to your existing system. There are a lot of little details to get right, so you definitely want someone that's qualified to come in and do that work. Speaking of qualifications, you want to make sure they have the right certifications. 
if it's a person working on your gas systems, then they should have a gas fitter certification. If it's someone working on your refrigeration systems, like heat pumps, for example, then it should be a refrigeration technician coming in to do that work. This is an idea I've harped on for the entirety of this podcast, but I do that because it's important. The idea of right sizing your equipment. You want to make sure that your equipment is properly sized for the demand. And that's where the heat loss and heat gain calculations we talked about comes in. You want to have someone come in and do that assessment so you know exactly how much heating you need for your space. In addition to that, you also want to make sure that the equipment you choose is properly rated for your climate. And this is particularly true of of heat pumps. You don't want to use a heat pump rated for plus five in minus five. And also your ducting should be properly sized. And we've talked about this before, but your vents, the ducts that make up your heating system, those two have to be properly sized to prevent noise complaints and to squeeze out all the efficiency you can get from the system. Another area I feel people tend to neglect is maintenance. For starters, you can just follow your manufacturer's maintenance best practices. Doing this will ensure that your system runs efficiently and effectively. What does following best maintenance practices look like? In general, it means regular replacement and cleaning of filters and ducts for ventilation systems. It means flushing out your hot water tank regularly, especially if you have hard water. For a domestic hot water tank, you also want to make sure that you're keeping an eye on it and replacing it before it fails. This will save you huge headaches so that it doesn't fail catastrophically at the worst possible time. Excellent. Well, big thanks, Dami, for walking us through this. Like so many things, it seems simple on the face of it, but when you really dive in, heating and hot water systems get complex very fast. So thank you for for navigating us through that. It's been my absolute pleasure, like you said. On the surface, it seems simple, but you can travel down the layers until you're down a rabbit hole. So it's absolutely my pleasure to help walk you all through that. And a big thank you to our listeners for taking the time in your day to learn more about heating and hot water systems and some of the decisions that you have to make when you're looking to replace or install new systems. We hope you found it helpful and perhaps have a few new ideas to bring to your work. For more information on the Home Energy Save program or to download the next podcast in this series, please visit Fraser Basin Council's website and the First Nations Home Energy Save webpage. You'll find there a companion resource for this podcast, along with links to incentive programs and resources available to Indigenous communities in British Columbia. You can also sign up for their newsletter to learn about new training opportunities and support programs. This podcast has been developed by SES Consulting as part of the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Safe Program. The program is sponsored by the Province of British Columbia, BC Hydro, Fortis BC, and the Real Estate Foundation of British Columbia. Production by Aaron Trazo of Bird Media. And smart thermostats, they're like programmable thermostats, but they just learn our patterns and our behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know that kind of sounds a little bit creepy, gives vibes of Terminator almost, but they're not out here to, to end the human race.